Amen. Great seeing you this morning. You may be seated. You may be seated. And let's go ahead and take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter number 7. Matthew chapter 7. Thank you so much for being here. Joel, I'm going to try turning on this mic. Uh, if we could maybe turn it down. Just There we go. There we go. So thank you so much for being here. And I, man, I missed you guys. And I just missed preaching so much last week. And I am excited to open back up the Word of God uh, to Matthew chapter 7. And we are in week number 5 of our sermon series, All My Questions. And as we've walked through the Sermon on the Mount, we are looking at how, uh, how we're looking at really how Jesus is teaching uh, goes beyond the surface and it really gets down to the core questions of our hearts and of our souls. Uh, in week number one, we talked about, we asked the question, we want to wrestle with the question, what is success? A lot of people define success as climbing the ladder, uh, self-preservation, uh, setting myself up to be in the best position for myself possible. Uh, but the way that Jesus talked about happiness and fulfillment, he said that blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are they that mourn, those who recognize their sin and their need for the Savior. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Uh, and the person who is successful is the person who is moves from independence to dependence on God. In week number two, we talked about what is good. We talked about what is good. You remember we went through that question. We want to wrestle with that because there is a group out there in our world today. There would be a, a segment of our society that would say good is, you remember we said, following your heart. That's what good is, following your heart. And we said that that just can't hold up primarily because our hearts are very fickle and we desire conflicting things. Uh, you may remember I gave the example, the silly example of when I walk through the grocery store aisle to check out, I may see the Avengers uh, in the aisle and I say, man, I want to look like Thor. I want to look like Captain America. But then right next to the magazine is a box of Twix. And I just want those all day long. Uh, so I, my heart wants conflicting things. So I can't really rely on just following my heart. And of course, that goes into much deeper ways than that silly example. But we said that the other side of that, the response to that is we recognize that following your heart doesn't work. So then we'd say the response is, well, just follow the rules. And that would be more of a religious response to just follow the rules. And as long as you uh, don't follow your heart, follow the rules, then you're okay. The problem is, is that we can't really follow the rules or uh, one of two things happen. Either we follow the rules that we've set up really well, and that leads to self-righteousness and pride, or we don't follow the rules well enough, and then that leads to despair. So the response is Matthew 5, 17 through 20, where Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. And we saw that Jesus, he lived it out perfectly. He taught it perfectly. But even more than that, Jesus fulfilled the promise in Jeremiah 31, where he says, I'm not just going to write the law on tables of stone. I'm going to write it upon my people's hearts. So that, like Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We said that following the rules is kind of like trying to cut your grass with a pair of scissors and making sure that all the grass is exactly the same height. Where the gospel gives us the power, it's the riding mower that gives us the power to actually please and honor the Lord. We can't do it through our own effort. It can only happen as the Spirit works through us. We talked about what is wealth. 
what is wealth? And a lot of times we would define that as having enough. And we saw last week, or not last week because I wasn't here last week, but in the last message that really what wealth is, is having enough. And if I have Jesus, then I have all that I need. But if I don't have Jesus, I will always need more. In Matthew chapter number 7, we are going to continue. And before we do, I just want to see one thing that uh, Jesus is really doing all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. I have another piece of art work for you church family. So we could go ahead and pull up that first picture cash. So this is by Tim Noble and Sue Webster. And isn't that just beautiful modern art? No, not really. What we have here is we have a trashy, a trashy staircase, uh, and then a bunch of just picked up debris, a bunch of wood. Uh, isn't it just so beautiful? I don't know what it is. But what's interesting is if you actually saw this in person, you would walk in and you'd see it look like this. But then a spotlight is going to shine on all of this. And what you're going to see, and we can go to the next picture, is when the light shines on this pile of stuff, it takes on a whole new meaning. It's something that turns into something beautiful. And with this one, I what I really like about this picture is I really like all the detail of the hair in this one, if you look really close. And what we're seeing is that as the light shines on this stuff, it takes on a whole new light. And whenever Jesus shines his light onto our lives, it takes whole new, a whole new meaning. And today I want to show you how the light of Jesus shines on relationships, on relationships. So today let's notice some gospel principles for healthy relationships. Matthew chapter number seven and verse number one, the Bible says this, judge not that you be not judged. And I'm just going to admit that whenever we started the gospel of Matthew, I, got, I was most nervous about preaching this passage, and then there's one other one that's coming down the road probably next year that I'm nervous about too. Uh, but judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, the beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him. <coughs> Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's just pray one more time and then we'll dive into this text. Father, I do ask one more time that you would meet with us, that you'd fill me with your spirit. And Lord, I pray that as we go through this message, that you would just edit the message as we go along. Would you help me to say nothing more and nothing less than what you once said? Uh, we 
this, this passage is familiar even to unchurched people. Uh, this first verse is familiar. And Lord, I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, that you'd open our eyes to the truth found in your word. May we never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Relationships can be a little tricky, can't they? Uh, it certainly was for Mr. Baker whenever he got married. Mr. Baker, he married a woman by the name of Edna Harvey. And, you know, that's all pretty simple, except for the Edna Harvey, I want to read this right. She was his granddaughter's husband's mother. That's where it gets a little tricky, because according to his granddaughter, Lynn, this is what she said. She said, now, after this wedding, my mother-in-law is now my step-grandmother. My grandfather is now my step-father-in-law. My mom is now my sister-in-law, and my brother is my nephew. But even crazier is that I'm now married to my uncle, and my own children are my cousins. Uh, it sounds like some people from Arkansas. Uh, so I can say that because I'm from Arkansas. Uh, relationships can be a little bit tricky. But Jesus gives, through this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, some beautiful principles for having healthier relationships. Now, I do want to start off, church family, by saying, before we get started, that relationships always involve more than one person. Which means that if I apply these principles, if I live out these principles, it doesn't mean that everything is just going to go perfectly. It doesn't mean that I won't have problems ever in my relationships because it, it takes two people to have a relationship. But I believe that if we apply these gospel principles, uh, then we can have healthier relationships. The first principle that I want to give you, I want to give you the principle and a statement to go with it. The first gospel principle that I want you to notice is the principle of humility. Humility. And I want to give you this statement that from this text in these first two verses. The role of judge is already taken. The role of judge is already taken. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. It says, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Now, a lot of people are familiar with this verse. Uh, you could probably Google different celebrities and different athletes that have done really, really dumb things. And then they'll get up behind a podium and they'll say, Hey, I'm sorry, but you know... Don't judge. Judge not, lest you be judged. But it's very interesting whenever you look at this first verse about don't judge, and we all know that one, and it seems pretty straightforward. Where it gets a little tricky is if you just keep on reading. And that typically happens in our lives if we just keep on reading the Bible, that it can mess up a lot of our thinking sometimes. But if you just keep on reading, if you look at verse number six, so verse one, it says, judge not that you be not judged. In verse number six, it says, give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. So it's really interesting because in verse number one, Jesus is saying, don't judge. In verse number six, Jesus is talking about the importance of making good judgments. In verse one, don't judge. Verse number six, don't cast your pearl before swine. And he's talking about making those judgment calls in relationships. You know, it's one of those things that can be quite confusing. And another passage that I thought of as I was looking over it this week is in the book of Proverbs. So there's a verse in Proverbs that whenever I read it, it just really got me. So this verse says in Proverbs, it says, answer not a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool. Simple, straightforward, until you get to the next verse where it says, answer a fool according to his folly. Verse one, don't answer a fool. Verse Two, answer a fool. Now, in Proverbs, where he's really getting at is a wise person knows 
when not to when not to answer a fool, and when to answer a fool. So Jesus is doing something very similar here in this text. He's saying, hey, there is uh, an, an element in which we do not judge, and then there is an element in which we do make judgments. And really, it can seem kind of confusing, except for we have been walking through this Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is really getting at the heart of every issue throughout the sermon. So what is the heart of the issue that Jesus is getting through whenever he says, judge not that you be not judged? And it's this heart, the, the Greek wording behind it is this, is this idea of sitting as a judge. Sitting as a judge. So it's not talking about just making judgment calls, not making decisions, not discerning what is right and what is wrong. That's not what he's talking about. So we all do those all the time. For example, you make judgments and you're about to right now. Ready? Say it out loud to me whenever I ask this question. Chocolate or vanilla? Pepsi, Pepsi or Coke? Coke. We're shutting down. We're shutting down. You people. I'm gonna start praying. I'm gonna start praying for revival. We need uh, Pepsi is the only acceptable answer. Okay, you ready? There's a right answer here too. Cowboys or Texans? Cowboys. Thank you. Somebody got something right. So there we go. We have some Ohio, uh, Ohioans. I don't know. If that's the way that you say it. Uh, Ohioans. Um, so you just made a judgment. You just said, hey, this is uh, between these options, this is what's good and this is what's not good. And I know that that's a silly example, but in our lives, and Jesus even instructs that there are times where we have to make judgments. Jesus made judgments whenever he went to the temple and he said, this, is, this shall be called the house of prayer. He said, uh, there's points where he stands before the Pharisees and he says, oh, you generation of vipers. That's what John the Baptist said. You remember in Matthew 3, he says, you generation of vipers. There's a moment for judgments to be made, judgment calls to be made. But where Jesus is getting is that the role of judge is already taken. And you're not him. You're not him. And in last message, we talked about how it's the tendency of all of our heart to elevate money to a Messiah-like level. You remember last, last time when we talked about money, how we all tend to look to money to be a God for us. We all look to money to provide for us what only God could provide for us. We look to money to provide for us peace, and we look for money to provide for us contentment. And we say, if I just had a little bit more money, then I could just relax and be comfortable. We look to money to provide for us what only God can provide for us. It's God who gives us peace. Money cannot. And it's a tendency of our heart, we said last time, that it's a tendency of our heart to elevate money to a Messiah-like level. And Jesus, here in this text, what he's doing is he's, he's leveling the field where he's saying, hey, there's no one else who can be a Messiah. There's no one else who can be a Savior. There's no one else who can be a Lord for you. Money can't do it, and guess what? You can't either. Amen. You can't either. And I'm so thankful for that because the reality is, is that whenever I place myself in the role of judge, I can't handle that. I can't handle that, and I'm not equipped to handle it. For example... First of all, I can't handle that of sitting in that position of judge where I know people's thoughts and I know people's intentions and I know people's motives because I just, I don't have all the answers. An example that we see of that, I believe is in Deuteronomy, where the children of Israel, they had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. For 40 years, they were going through the wilderness and the reason why they were there for 40 years in this desert was because 40 years earlier, they refused to believe and obey God. 40 years, fast forward 40 years, and now they're ready. 
The children of Israel, they're saying, hey, we're going to go into the promised land. We're going to believe God. We're going to drive out the giants. We're finally going to have the fulfillment of the promise that God made to our great-great-grandfather Abraham 400 years earlier. But there were two tribes, two of the 12, that said, hey, uh, Moses, or hey, Joshua. I can't remember if it's Deuteronomy or Joshua. I think it's Deuteronomy. They say, hey, Moses, when you guys go west of the Jordan into the promised land, we don't actually want to settle west of the Jordan. We want to settle east of the Jordan. And immediately, everyone loses their minds. They said, no, we're not doing this again. We made this mistake 40 years earlier. Our fathers got us stuck here in the desert because we wouldn't believe and obey God. And here you are. You just don't want to go across the Jordan. You don't want to fight these battles. You don't want to trust God. You don't want to believe God. And we know your heart. You can't do that to us again. We're not letting that happen. Well, these two tribes, they answer, they say, hey, no, listen, that's not what it is at all. The, the way that, our, uh, the way that our, our, our farming works and the way, that, uh, the way everything has worked for us is that it's just a better land for us and for our economy on the east side of the Jordan. But our desire is not to disobey God. Our desire is not to disbelieve God. Our men will go across the Jordan. Our men will fight until everyone is driven out. Our soldiers will fight until, until the battle is won and we all have the promised land together. But after that happens, we want to go back to the east side of Jordan. The reality is, is that those ten tribes assumed the heart motives of the two tribes and they were, they were off. They were wrong. And then once, once God stepped in, they realized that, hey, we don't know those heart motives. We don't know, uh, we don't know what's going on there. And listen, neither do you and neither do I. So many times when we sit in that place of judge, we think that we know people's motives, but we just we don't always have those answers. Another reason why we're not equipped to be judge is because we are here in one particular moment and we don't see the long game. Uh, we don't see what God is doing in the long haul. Uh, I this week, um, my my girls, they got I don't even know what that's called, that little alarm clock light thing. Uh, my girls got something where it's like an alarm clock slash nightlight slash Bluetooth speaker slash uh, radio. I don't even know what it is. I haven't really seen it. All I know is that whenever I go into my house in a Green Gables, the book is always being played and I'm about to lose my mind. Uh, and then, uh, but the other day, uh, it was like, it was yesterday or the day before. Uh, I am so honored to have my in-laws here. Uh, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, they're here and I'm so excited to have them with us. Uh, I was walking by and I heard from the room, I heard their voices. And my father-in-law and my mother-in-law, they were singing. And just for all of our special treat, I'm going to play that for you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going <laughs> to. Yes, I got my mother-in-law. No, I'm not going to do that to you. But they made this recording where you plug this little card into that machine and then it, it played. And what they were doing on that card was they were singing a bunch of different uh, Sunday school songs. And they were listening to all of them, and they were going through. Well, I heard one that they were singing that I grew up singing. And it said, it goes like this. He's still working on me right. to make me what I ought to be. Right. It took him just a week to make the moon and stars, the sun and the earth, and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. He's still working on me. Yeah. And aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that he's still working on me, that he's still working on you, and that you're a work in process? You're, you're not, God's not done with you. He's bringing you along. But something that I think all of us should remember, if we could add a second verse, and I didn't go write it all out, but we should remember this, is I shouldn't just be grateful that he's still working on me, 
If I could write a second verse, I would say, I need to remember that he's still working on you. Because our Savior loves you too. And that's all that I can go that rhymes. <laughs> Listen, I'm thankful for God's grace in my life. And so often what we want is I want grace in my life, but I want justice in yours. Uh, I want grace. I want God's mercy for my mistakes and for my failures. But we're ready to drop the hammer down on other people. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, you don't have that role. That role is already filled. And that's a wonderful thing because in verse 2 what we see, in verse 2 what we see is that whenever we take that position, when we take that position of judge, which is something that has gone all the way back to the Garden of Eden, whenever Satan said uh, to Adam and to Eve in the Garden that, hey, if you just do this, you'll be like God. You can be in God's place. You'll know what God knows. That's been the desire of mankind since the beginning, but we can't handle that weight. In verse number 2, he says, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. I love the way that one preacher put it. He said, whenever it comes to, whenever it comes to judging, for being that, in that position of judge, it just has a boomerang effect. Whenever I sit in that position of judge, then I always end up getting broken. Uh, I end up getting broken by my own judgment. Typically, if, if I'm a hypercritical person, then it's probably because I'm insecure and I'm worried about the critique of everyone else. If I get into that position, then I end up getting broken uh, by, by the position that I take. And here Jesus says, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. There's a boomerang effect. Whenever we try to take that role, we get broken by that hammer. Uh, and so we see that this first principle of humility and, what a, and uh, the role of judge is already taken. If the next principle, if you look with me in verses 3 and 4, you look with me in verses 3 and 4, is the biblical principle of repentance, of repentance. Verses, verse 3, it says, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. So here Jesus continues, and he shows our own hypocrisy. And I love this, the way that he just describes this. And it's a picture, so you're just going to have to imagine it, imagine it because this doesn't happen to anybody. Uh, but Jesus says, hey, just imagine that someone has a splinter in their eye. Uh, they have a splinter, they have a speck, and, and that's bad. How, like, I can't imagine, like, whenever something gets in my contact lens, uh, if my contact lens rips, I feel like I'm going to die. Uh, so, but, but Jesus said, hey, there's a splinter in somebody's eye. You know, you're trying to get it out, but there's a whole, there's a whole log hanging out of yours. So it's like this log, and I don't even know how to illustrate it. Like, I couldn't do it as an object lesson. I'm not putting something in my eye like that. But, like, I'm walking around with a log hanging out of my eye, and I'm saying, hey, let me, let me get that for you. Let me just, hey, you got that major problem. Let me get that for you. And Jesus says, hey, don't you understand that your sin is a big deal? And you're so busy looking at everyone else. And, and notice the words. I believe it's in, in verse number three. If we could go back to verse three. You're doing an awesome job, Cash. But he says, why beholdest? Notice that word, behold. Why beholdest the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own? He says, you're putting the sins of other people under a magnifying glass, but then you're not even stopping for a moment to consider your own. And the heart that we should have according to Jesus, is that we, we get more serious about our sin than the sins of other people. The biggest sin, the most important sin that needs to be dealt with is my own. Is my own. Can I just ask you this question? 
How do you think that your life would be different if you took your sin as seriously as the sin of the politician or the political party that you despise the most? If you took your sin as seriously, what would your life look like? If you took as seriously your sin as you do the sins of, of people out there whose, whose attitude or whose sin really bothers you, if you got that serious, if you got that worked up, if you, got, if you said, God, I, I, I need you to get that out, if we prayed as much for our own hearts as we did for the national sins of our country, how would we be different? How would we be different? Jesus says that the most important sin that you need to take care of is your own. So it's this principle of repentance. I love the way that someone put it. He said, repentance isn't just a one-time moment when we get saved. Repentance should be the daily lifestyle of the believer. Uh, the daily lifestyle of the believer should be that of repentance. Because the truth of the matter is, is that I cannot clean my face with dirty hands. Uh, we've been we've been working. These guys have been working uh, like crazy. I've been watching and just answering questions, uh, but they've been working like crazy. I've got dust on me, so but whenever I go home and I get ready to clean up, uh, I can't just go with my with my dusty hands, with my dirty hands, and just start wiping my face, uh, or else I'm just gonna get my face dirty. No, I gotta I gotta clean my hands first before I can wash my face. And whenever it comes to this I, this these relationships. First of all, I need to take a posture of humility. But the second, I need to take a posture of, of I, I need to be working on the things that God is doing and convicting me of. We need to have the heart of David that says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Jesus said, why are you beholding other sin but not even taking a moment to consider your own? We need to have this lifestyle of repentance. <clears throat> The third principle in the text that I want you to notice is in verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. He says, Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearl before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. So the third principle that we need to notice this morning is the principle of the body. The principle of, of the body, the church body. And, and the statement that I want to give you is this, is that sanctification is a community project. Growth is a community project. Notice that we could go back to verse number five, but I want you to look at that with me. Uh, it says, thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye. So we saw in the last principle... Uh, we saw the last principle that I need to be dealing with my sin. I need to be humbling myself before the Lord, and I need to be acknowledging, God, here's where I'm wrong, and I repent of that, and I turn to you. So he says, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then I want you to notice what he says. And then shalt thou see clearly, sorry, go back. Then shalt thou see clearly to cast the moat out of thy brothers. So here's where Jesus is going. You know, we looked at verse number one. Judge not that you be not judged. But then we get to verse number five, and Jesus is working through this, is that whenever it comes to my growth, and whenever it comes to your growth, we can't do it alone. We can't do it alone. We all have blind spots. I need you, church family, I need you to help me grow. And, and we need to help each other grow. Honestly, that is the point, that is probably the, one of the biggest points of our discipleship groups. Uh, in our discipleship groups, when we gather and we say, hey, how is your walk with Jesus this week? 
Hey, is there something that you're struggling with this week? Is there something that, hey, that we need to pray for together this week? The point of that is that I'm not growing by myself. And some of, my, some of the moments where I've probably grown the most this year, honestly, have been where I have sat across from David Jones or Cole, or where I've sat down across from Ty and Trent in one of my groups, and I just say, hey, guys, this is, what, this is where I'm struggling this week. It's those moments where I, I said to Colton and David Jones, I said, hey, guys, I'm really struggling. I'm really down because of this and this and this. And then those guys just say, hey, pastor, let's pray for you right now. Uh, it's those moments where, hey, I can't walk through that by myself. I need other people to walk through that with me. And when Jesus, when Jesus, when Jesus constructed this, this idea of the church in Ephesians 2, he, he looks, Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a group of Jews and Gentiles who are struggling to get along. And he says, hey, don't you understand uh, that the veil, whenever Jesus died for you, the veil was torn in two, and he reconciles you two together, and now you are one holy building that is being brought together in the Lord because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus died and he was buried and he rose again. He made your family, when you trusted him, he made your family a lot bigger than what it was previously. And it's not just about you in your own little seat. You need other brothers and sisters in the Lord to come alongside of you and to help you grow. So that at the end of Ephesians 2, it says that he's building together this temple. Another example that he uses, that Paul uses in the book of Romans is that we are a body and, and, and the hand needs the eye and right. uh, the eye needs the ears and the ears need right. the feet and we're all different parts, but I couldn't wash my face if I didn't have any hands. Uh, we need to help each other in this thing called life. We need to help each other in our growth. I need you and, and you need each other as we grow together. I can't do it by myself, but if I'm just walking around as a self-righteous jerk to everybody saying, hey, here's your problem, Eddie, and here's your problem, Roslyn, and here's your problem, Titus, and we just go around like that. If I'm just walking around like that, I can't be of any help. But when I walk in humility and I'm asking the Lord to search me and to know me and I'm submitting myself to my brothers and sisters in Christ saying, hey, would you help me grow? And we all have that posture that we can help each other grow in this Christian life. We have to do that together. So church family, that's why it's important. And that's why I say on a fairly regular basis that it's important that we do more than just come in at, at 1030 and leave at 1130 or whenever I preach long 1150. Uh, it's important that we do more than just come in last minute and then leave, but we actually have to know each other. We actually have to care for each other. We actually have to love each other because if I'm going to have healthy spiritual relationships, then I have, I have to have the humility and the desire to help. I have to have that desire to help. So when Jesus said, talks about making judgment calls and those kinds of things, it's from a position of humility that he's saying, don't judge. But we also have to have that heart to help to actually come alongside of each other and help each other grow and help each other see each other's blind spots. Um, that's why in Ephesians chapter 5, I just heard some messages on this recently where, where the preacher was talking about how in marriage, Jesus says that, uh, or Paul says that, that the husband and the wife, uh, that they are to uh, present each other. They're to present each other kind of like Jesus presents the church to God as a glorious church, as a spotless church. The husband and the wife are supposed to do that for each other. They're supposed to help each other grow. And that's how we're supposed to be as a church too. Uh, so we need this position of humility, repentance, uh, this position of understanding the body, that I need others to help me to help me grow. And then the final principle that I want you to look at is this principle of grace. And we'll move, we'll move quickly through this at the end. But in verses 7 through 12, he says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. 
Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom if a son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And in these last verses, we see this principle of grace. So first we see that we need to have this humility, this repentance, this desire to help. But then we see this beautiful picture of grace that Jesus gives as he continues walking through this thought. Uh, Jesus says, and we know the verses, Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Um, for everyone that asketh and receiveth, he that seeketh findeth. Uh, and he says, if, someone, if a son asks his dad for a stone, will he give him? Uh, if he asks for bread, will he give him a stone? If he asks for, if he asks for fish, is the dad going to give him a snake? Like, no, that's not what's going to happen. Uh, when we get through this, we see this beautiful picture of God's grace. We've been covering a lot of heavy material over the last several weeks in our, in our messages. It was heavy to talk about money two weeks ago. And that's kind of overwhelming that, that, hey, I need to work and I need to have a good ethic, but at the same time, I don't trust in money. That, that's difficult. It's difficult to sit in this position of, of judging and not judging, of making judgments the right way and in a way that honors Christ. And then Jesus just speaks into this where he said, I just picture these people being overwhelmed. Like, wow, this is, this is a lot. And Jesus is saying, hey, ask. You have a good father who comes alongside of you and gives you grace and gives you what you need and gives you that peace and gives you that help because he's a good father. Last summer, um, I was honestly, I was just kind of down uh, through a couple of different circumstances last summer, and I was reading and I was studying this passage of scripture. I was reading where it says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more then shall your father give to those that ask him? Right. And I remember just sitting, I remember sitting on my recliner and I was, and I was reading that and then I just wrote off in the side of my Bible. Like it, it's still there. I, was, I wrote off to the side of my Bible, God, I'm struggling today. Can you show me that you're my good father? So I just wrote it down. Can you show me you're my good father? And it was, it was just really cool. So later that day, I did that that morning whenever I was spending time with the Lord in the morning. That afternoon, Adriana calls me and she says, hey, you're never going to believe this. So our neighbor who lived across the street, she was a professional yard seller. She just sells stuff all the time. Well, Adriana and I, we've been married for seven and a half years now. And something that I've just never been able to do for her is I've never been able to get her the plate set that she wants. Like she knows what she wants. She wants a certain certain types of plates and bowls and those kinds of things. Well, I've just I've never been able to do that for her. And she calls me and she's like, "You're never gonna believe this. Janet is selling the plates that I want." And it was was it four? She said, and she's selling it for four dollars. <laughs> So for $4, we got 12 plates that she's been wanting for seven and a half years on the day that I said, God, can you, God, can you show me that you're my good father? That's not it. That's not it. The next day, uh, someone just came by and they dropped off one of those robot vacuums. You know those Roombas? 
Like, there, I looked it up later. It's like, that's like a $500 robot vacuum cleaner thing. And somebody just said, hey, we don't need this anymore. Would you like it? And they just brought it by and they gave it to us. A $500 vacuum cleaner. I haven't figured out how to get it to work yet. If you have a robot, come talk to me. That's not it. The next day, I've always, I've kind of always wanted, and like, I'm just going to admit, I'm kind of a bougie person, um, but I've kind of always just wanted to try one of those Amber Combi and Fitch shirts. Uh, if you know what I'm talking about, those are like, uh, those are expensive shirts too, and I'm like, nah, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna be able to buy one. But, but uh, I just kind of always wanted one. Well, the next day I'm walking by, and there's my neighbor again, with an Amber Combi and Fitch shirt that is my size. Now I'm six foot four and 200 pounds. <laughs> And it, it was a like it was a perfect fit for one dollar. Oh so in two or three days, God gave us a plate set that Adriana has wanted for seven years. I uh, gave us a vacuum cleaner that I would never even dream of going to the store and even thinking about picking up, and then gave a shirt that I just a brand of shirt that I've wanted for a long time that just fit perfectly for a grand total of five dollars. <coughs> We have a good and gracious father. And that is like, I know that like that may seem small to somebody in here, but that's a big thing to me. That's a big thing to me because whenever I needed God to just pick me up and just show me that he loved me, he said, hey, I'll just drop a few things on you uh, to show you that I love and love you and that I care for you. And you know what? He's, he's the same for you. He's the same for you. He loves you. He cares for you. He's a good father to you. So whenever it comes to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, maybe you're stressed about finances today. You have a good and loving and caring father who cares for you. Maybe you're walking through difficult relationships. God loves and cares for you and can give you what you need. But then he doesn't just stop there. We're not just supposed to take that and say, aren't you thankful for God's goodness and walk away and just, and just keep that to ourselves? Because no, Jesus continues on and this is where we're wrapping up. He says, therefore, when you see the word there, I heard some preacher say sometime. When you see the word therefore, look back to see what it's there for. <laughs> it says, therefore, because of all this that we've talked about, all things, whatsoever you would, that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and prophets. If I, I need, we need to help each other in growth, I need to have that kind of heart. This grace that we've received, that's what we give, that's what we give out. Whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. And so interesting here in this verse, I, I heard a preacher talk about this, and I just thought that this was a really cool idea. Because I always, when he first said it, I disagreed, and you probably will too. So this passage, even if you're unchurched, um, even, if, even if you're brand new to the Bible, you're probably familiar with do unto others as you would have them do unto okay. you. Uh, we're, I think most of us are probably familiar with that. And this this guy, he's talking about this, and he says, this is the only teaching like it of its kind. Like, when Jesus says this, it's the only, it's, this, is, this is it. Like, no other religion has this. And when I heard it, I thought, that, like, that's not true. Uh, and maybe if you're well-read, you'd say, well, that, that's not true. Maybe you'd quote the Rabbi Hillel, who said, if it's not helpful, don't do it to other people. Like, if something's not helpful, don't do it. Uh, you could quote somebody like Confucius and say, whatever you don't want people to do to you, don't do it. 
so there's all these different religions that have some take that kind of sounds that kind of sounds like this, doesn't it? Like, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. It sounds kind of similar. But here's where, and we could go on with some different groups that have some type of saying that sounds kind of the same. But here's where it's completely different. If it's not helpful to them, don't do it. Uh, if you don't want it done to you, don't do it to others. All of those things are about self-preservation. It's all about functioning in a society where I'm just doing what I can to get by and not get hurt by others. Don't make too many enemies. Here's where it's completely different the way of Jesus. He says, whatever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. And as believers, the most valuable thing that we have in our lives is the gift of God's grace. The fact that we can never deserve his love. The fact that he is judge, and before him we stand condemned. Uh, God, the just judge, who knows every wrong thing you've ever done. Like, we don't want a perfect judge. Uh, if we had perfect justice in our country, then every time that you drove 36 miles an hour in a 35-mile speed zone, you would get fined if we had a perfect justice system. Uh, I don't want a perfect, uh, like, maybe better, but I don't want an absolutely perfect justice system where every time I drive up Irvington to go home, I would get a ticket. But God is the absolute perfect judge who knows absolutely everything that you have ever done. And before him, you stand condemned. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. There is none righteous, no, not one. And it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, judgment. God, the perfect and holy judge, has a perfect record of everything we've ever done, and someday we will stand before <clears throat> But God commendeth, he demonstrated his love for you and for me, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Justice had to be served. So he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we, may, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Even though we were guilty, Jesus died in our place so that justice could be fulfilled. And he says, I will apply to you my righteousness, and I will take all of your guilt. I will lavish out my grace on you. So you don't just go from being guilty to being innocent, but you go from being guilty to being righteous. You don't just go from being the enemy of God to being a citizen. You go from being an enemy to a son. As many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That is the grace that God lavishes out on you and on me for every person who has received the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given you the power to become the sons of God. You are made a child of God because of his grace. And because of that grace, he says in verse 12, that is how you are to love and treat others. We have to have wisdom. We have to make good judgment calls. We have to know what is right and wrong. And we have to choose what is good. But we do so with humility, repentance, and we do so fueled by the grace of Jesus. And when we serve others with the grace of Jesus, it absolutely transforms everything. In the, I, I don't remember what century it was. Uh, do you know, here's a, do you know when the harpsichord, when the harpsichord, okay, she doesn't know. My wife is a pianist, she's a musician. Okay, but centuries gone by, 
uh, there was an instrument called the harpsichord. So the harpsichord was kind of like a piano, uh, but if you're not familiar with the piano, the way, that the, the way that the harpsichord worked was you played the keys like you played on a piano, and then there was like a, a, a plucker that plucked the strings, kind of like a guitar. Well, whenever you play the harpsichord, the, the strings would get plucked, but the problem with it was the harpsichord just kind of worked slow. Uh, there wasn't a lot that you could do with it because it just took a long time for the strings to get played by plucking. And then someone had the idea, what if we take the same idea, but instead of when you press the keys, the string getting plucked, what if when you press the key, there was like a little hammer that came down on the strings to make the notes? So they invented what we know today as the piano. And it was completely, it was a similar instrument. But when that one little shift was made, everything was different. And music is different today because of it. In your life and in my life, Whenever it comes to judgment, whenever it comes to evaluating right and wrong, whenever it comes to dealing with other people in our lives, if we can embrace the gospel of Jesus, uh, that uh, with humility and repentance and love and grace, it will transform. I believe it will transform our relationships uh, forever, forever. But it takes the grace of Jesus, it takes the love of Jesus, it takes the gospel of Jesus to make that work. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your love and your kindness to us. Thank you that you um, that you relieve us from the pressure of having to be judged. That we can trust that you are working in our lives and in the lives of others. Lord, I pray that and ask that you would give us wisdom. Uh, to make to know how to handle difficult situations, to make righteous judgments. And Lord, I pray that everything we do would be fueled, fueled by the good news 